Thank you very much again to the, to the special Kehila here. So last week we spoke uh, about kind of what I called the big picture, the forest of, um, of Pesach and not just the trees. Tonight we want to see how some of the trees, so to speak, fit together, meaning the details at the Leil HaSeder. A friend of mine gave a very interesting mushal, a parable, a comparison for someone who goes through the Pesach Seder without knowing what it's really accomplishing. Let's imagine a chatan, a groom, who's there on the day of his wedding, but nobody really explained to him what's really going to happen, what the overreaching goal is. So they have him sit down at a table, and they tell him to pick something up and to put it down and to sign his name here and to look at these witnesses, say, you are my witnesses. Then they tell him, you're going to walk into that room. There's a girl sitting there in a big white dress. She's got a veil. Put it over her head, right, and then come with us. Then they tell him, you have to walk up there and stand under that canopy, okay? And then this girl in the white dress is going to come down again. She's going to run seven laps around you. And eventually, she's going to stick out her finger. You're going to take this ring. You're going to put it on her finger. People are going to make lots of noise. There are going to be blessings, wine. Everyone's going to jump up and down. Eventually, you'll be able to go home. And he's a very, you know, passive kind of fellow. He says, okay. Uh, and a person can really go through it that way and do all those things. But what really is happening? Meaning the unification of that man and that woman is really what's happening. And all those details are part of that. The fact that it has to be done with those witnesses in that way that the ring has to be his, unless a person understands that, so then they all seem to be a mishmash. On Pesach, the details are not just a mishmash, but they seem contradictory. We have a lot of contradictions at the Leila Seder. One of the first, and we're going to be speaking a lot about the, uh, the props, so to speak, the Seder plate, the things that are there in front of us, what they are, why they are, and what we do with them. So, unfortunately, like I said, when we do things for a long time, we get used to it, and we don't ask questions. So, on the, most people's Seder plate, you have an egg. Okay, why an egg? Why not an egg? <laughs> it's, a, it's an egg. And um, if you look into the roots of this in the Mishnah, that you would have... Two cooked items on the Seder plate. So the custom now is to have some type of cooked meat. Okay, some people have a chicken wing. Believe it or not, the community I come from, they use a chicken throat, a gurgle, what's called. Right? Other people have a little piece of lamb on a bone, etc. That's one thing. The other thing is the egg. Now, in the, this is to commemorate two korbanot that were eaten at the time of Pesach in the Beis HaMikdash, the Korban Pesach, that we read about a lot, and the other was the Korban Chagiga, right, that there would be a holiday offering. Believe it or not, the Korban Pesach was eaten al-hasova, when you were satisfied. You would make a chabura, you would make a group of people who would all sign up for a lamb, and it was supposed to be um, calculated so that each person would have a kazayit, an olive's worth of lamb, but there would be no leftovers. You're not supposed to leave any over until the morning. So what was your main meal was the korban chagiga, which was cooked, a cooked item. And 
that is what the egg represents. So that's why it's very important to know bottom line halacha, right? If you were stuck someplace trying to put together a seder and you did not have an egg, say, well, that's it. <laughs> we just can't have Passover this year. There's no egg on the seder plate. You can have any cooked item. The Gemara talks about a variety of different possibilities. So how did we end up with an egg? There are a couple of explanations. One is the Aramaic word for egg, be'a, is, has to do with the word to desire. wanted to redeem us. But the Ramah brings down this idea of a strange peculiarity in the Jewish set calendar. The same night of the week that Pesach comes out on is always going to be the same night of the week that Tishabov comes out on. If Pesach comes out, the Leila Seder, Tuesday night, so the night of Tishabov is going to be Tuesday night. It seems like an interesting curiosity. And it seems like something we would want to forget on Leila Seder. We should be forgetting about Tishabov. We should be forgetting about the Chorban. Tonight we're talking about the heyday of the Jewish people. When we went out like kings, we want to talk about Betzeti Mimitzrayim and not about Betzeti Mirushalayim. Why would we have it there? Why would we bring it at the time? So that's the first item there that catches our eye and really points out this contradiction. Now, the next one, which is very obvious there, is the idea of maror, right, of the bitter herbs that we have. Now, people may say, of course you need that, because... The Seder is something that you're kind of acting out, you're going through, it's experiential, and we want to experience the freedom from what? From bitterness. So you have to taste the bitterness in order to appreciate the freedom. But if you look in your Haggadah when it lists the order of what we do that night, right? We do Maror after Matzah, which represents freedom. If we were supposed to be showing that transition, shouldn't we start with maror? Here we sense the bitterness, the Egyptians made our lives bitter. And now matzah, which is the bread of freedom, which as we said last week, you eat behesebah because that's a sign that you're eating royally, that comes afterwards. That's strange. Why is it that way? We're going to get there. Another item on the Seder table. Wine. Okay, now... One year I was just learning the Mishnabura, and he mentioned that there's a preference for red wine. It's a discussion in halacha if you really don't like red wine, if the white wine is better, if you mix a little right, uh, red wine, the white, pour your white wine into a little bit of red wine first to give it a tinge. Why the red wine? So one answer is because it's more beautiful. If you're a food photographer and you're doing a table, if you have a crystal glass with Red wine, it looks nicer than white wine in certain ways. And there's a pasuk, Don't be seduced by the redness of wine because it's so beautiful to drink too much. The other explanation is to remember the blood of the Jewish babies who were slaughtered in Egypt. I think, wait a second. Wait a second. These kosot are called the four kosot of Geula. They correspond to the four shonot of Geula. Votseiti, vitzalti, vagaalti, vilakachti. Where Hashem says, I'm going to take you out, redeem you, take you. Blood in there? 
that seems like a very strange mix. It's a celebratory cup. Again, we're drinking it, the Heseba, which signifies that it's part of the celebration, part of the freedom. But that would seem to be some kind of moral aspect which is in there. It's very strange. Among the arguments you find as to whether uh, you can have grape juice alone or if you need something alcoholic, and again, right, anyone who doesn't feel good with wine, there are plenty of posts who say you can just have grape juice. But some of those who do want something alcoholic is because they said it's a cup of cherut. You don't say break out the grape juice when it's time to celebrate, right? There is something which is supposed to be there. So how does that go together with the dam, with the blood? Perhaps the strangest of all is the charoset. Okay, now charoset is people's favorite item on the table, usually, right? Different communities have their different variations on recipes as to how it's made, even though we'll see where the basic ingredients come from in a second. Now, one of the least loved halachas that you can bump into is the fact that when you dip your maror into the charoset, the maror is not meant to be a shovel with which you eat charoset. Right? You're supposed to dip it in and kind of shake off the charoset to make sure it doesn't overpower the bitter taste of the maror that you're supposed to have. Okay, but what is it? Is it just functional? So the Mishnah brings down the shita of Rabbi Lazar who says the charoset is a mitzvah to have at the Seder table. Okay, it is actually... It's not just a condiment for the mara. It's not just to stop you from getting damaged by the bitterness of the mara. But it, in its own sense, it's a player at the Seder table. What does it tell us about? So it tells us about mud. <laughs> it tells us about mud. Okay, they worked b'chomer bilvenim. They worked with mud. That was what they were enslaved doing. I mentioned the last year that I did see this video of people to this day making bricks by the Nile. The mud in certain parts of the Nile is very good for making bricks, and they make it by mixing it with straw. So it's the thickness which is the main part of that food which is on the Seder table. Um, it's also, the other opinion is, that it's zecher letapuach, okay, to remind us of the apples or the apple trees. On apple trees. So in Shirashim we have the Posuk Tachata Tapuach Orartich, which Chazal say refers to the supernatural growth of Am Yisrael in Mitzrayim, that as the Egyptians were trying to hunt down and prevent Jewish women from having children, they would go out and have their children by the apple trees. They would meet their husbands by the apple trees. All this was happening there at the apple trees. Therefore, you should have something in there which is tart which they mentioned being either apples or wine or wine vinegar that adds a certain sharpness to it that reminds us of this tapuach. Bottom line in halacha, I believe that the, um, we go that the main thing is it has to be thick. I saw in the Shulchan Aruch, Harav Balatanya, he says that if you were stuck, you could like mash up spinach and water and make some kind of muck and you would be, you'd say the idea of charosa. Okay? So where did we get our recipe for charoset from. Tosut brings down from the Gaonim that it says that Am Yisrael make charoset out of fruits that the Jewish people are compared to, especially in Shirashirim. Okay, it's a very special part of being able to be in Eretz Yisrael in the springtime to be able to see the psukim of Shirashirim come to life. All the descriptions, and again, 
Pesach has to be in Chodesh Aviv. That's the linchpin of the Jewish calendar. And therefore, we really should be paying attention. If the Torah wants Pesach to be in the spring, and spring means that certain things happen in nature, we should be paying attention to what that is. So we find, If you'll notice, the fig trees, they put out these little bumps. These are the pagim, the baby figs, that are just starting. For some reason in the Israeli hospitals, they call the word for premature children a pagia. Okay, these are the little premature figs, right? Heinetsu harimonim. Have the pomegranate trees put out those lovely orange flowers. Haparcha gefen, right, has the grapevine, right, put out these things. Elginat egoz yaradati, to the nuts also. The Babacher Rebbe said Jewish people are compared to nuts, not just because we're nuts, but because uh, the, a nut it can fall in the mud, it can get thrown all over, but the inside of the nut remains fine. It's protected. That inner kernel always remains there. Um, shkedim, almonds, that is one that's not particularly from Shir Hashirim, it's, but it implies speed. In Tanakh, lishkod means to do something quickly. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu came to quickly redeem us. Dates, right, is Leba Tamar, also described. That pretty much makes a lot of the ingredients. What else do we have in there? People put in cinnamon. People put in ginger. Now, I have to admit, I haven't done this. Every year I talk to my wife about we should really do this, but I don't do it. That the cinnamon and ginger were chosen, this the Mepharshim explained, because they didn't have the superpower grinders that we had then that pulverized cinnamon and ginger into a powder. They would come out stringy. Okay, if you take a cinnamon strip and you strip and you stick, sorry, and you pull it into thin strips, or ginger, also, it's very fibrous, and you get these strings, so that's really supposed to be part of the charoset representing the straw that's in the mud. Okay, so that's what's there. Now, wait a second. Again, we bump into this contradiction. If this represents mud, the mud of our suffering, the mud of our enslavement, why are we making it delicious? Why are we having that mud represent the Jewish people who are compared to all these delicious foods? It doesn't make sense. So these are some of the contradictions that we have right there on the Seder plate. Let's try to get to work now to try to figure out what's going on, what the message of those things are, and why it makes Pesach so relevant for us. Before we get to the contradictions, let's just speak about one of the other strange ones that we have. Different communities have a little bit of something on the Seder plate which is really that first thing you get to eat the evening, the karpas. Okay, some people have celery, some people have parsley. Um, probably because my family came from Eastern Europe and there was nothing grown there. I mean, we have a piece of potato. That's, uh, that's what's there. And you have this little bit. It has to be a tiny bit. You're not filling yourself up with it. And in the Gemara, when it asks, why do we have that dipping of the karpas in salt water, even though some communities would dip in lemon juice or other things. So they explain it's so that the children should ask, right? In the Manishtana, we have this question, Other nights, we don't have to dip our food even one time. Tonight, we dip two times. One time, karpas in salt water. One time, Mara in Charoset. 
So the Gemara said, okay, but why do we have to dip two times? I said, so that the children will ask you, why are we dipping two times? So let's play it through. The child asks, why do we dip two times tonight? Ah, so you will ask. Okay, I asked, what's the answer? <laughs> that seems to be. Now, um, that does fit into a certain theme that there should be questions. And it's brought in the that doing all sorts of different things at Leila Seder, this is what gives people the license to dress up as a frog when you're doing the makot and all these different things, right? Whatever it takes to get people interested in asking is on the table. But the Shemi Shmuel of Shmuel Sachachov brought a beautiful explanation. He said, just take a look at your own stomach, right? Be what they call, eat your karpas mindfully and see what it does to you. What it does to you is it makes you really hungry, right? It's this, you know, somebody's reading there in Aloha, please be careful not to eat a kazayit of the karpas because it can get you into all sorts of halachic complications, right? So you take your little bit and somebody grabs it away from you that you shouldn't have too much and you are hungrier than when you started. He said, exactly. He says, the idea of hunger is key. If you take a look at how the Jewish people went out of Mitzrayim, Moshe Rabbeinu came and told them that they were going to be redeemed, but they weren't redeemed right away. And at first, it was hard for them to believe him. And it took time until they would get there. (laughs) If we were honest, if suddenly, you know, they interrupted all the usual headache stuff that's on the radio said, we're sorry, you know, Mashiach has arrived, you know, everybody's got to redo their Pesach plans, and uh, all these different things, some kind of prank, some kind of joke, we just, we wouldn't believe it. And he says, that is the way it will be eventually, as we say in Shara Malot, it'll be like we're dreaming, won't believe it. So you know what, it's finally happening. No way. We won't get it. He says, a person needs time to absorb, to internalize to acclimate. So the idea of feeling that the gu'ula is available to the extent that you'll be hungry for it is how we start off. And that connects to what we said last week or two weeks ago, which is this is not just something that happened way back then. Jews are really not into nostalgia as the world would stereotype us. These people who keep on, you know, going on and on about we were really great people once and God did great miracles for us a few thousand years ago. We're talking about something which is real and which is relevant now. And that gets to the biggest contradiction that's sometimes there. How do you celebrate Pesach, the Chag of Cherut, the Chag of Geula, when you're found in either a national or a personal or both forms of gold? Okay? It's not always a happy time. The name which Hashem revealed himself, Tami at the time, I will be what I will be, already told them, he says, as Rashi explained, that I am with you in this tzara, in this difficulty, I will be with you in the future tzarot. There will be tzarot. It isn't just that Pesach was designed for one format of history, for one timeline in which everything is going good and keeps getting better, and every year the Jews celebrate the beginning of all that wonderfulness that started at Pesach. It was designed that we would be keeping Pesach in times of suffering, in times of subjugation, in times of personal, spiritual, or physical, or other types of difficulty and agony. And the halacha seems to mandate that I have to act like something happy is happening. 
that this is relevant to me here. How do I do it? What is it that I can do? So first, let's take a look at how we got into Mitzrayim. There's one passage in the Haggadah that just, I don't know why, it, it hit me so hard one year, and, and I, 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 I notice it every year. We read Psukim from Yehoshua. Okay, we read Psukim, right, the Haggadah takes from a variety of different sources. We read Psukim from Yehoshua, where he kind of summarized for the Jewish people how we got there. And he tells us a little bit of our family history. Okay, after telling us that we descended from idolaters. And in fact, I just saw recently the Kajan Tzermagit says that's not just talking about Terach, even though he's mentioned, but Avram Avinu grew up as an idolater. There are different opinions in Chazal at which age he abandoned idolatry and he discovered Akarosh Baruch Hu and uh, monotheism, so to speak. But these are our forefathers. That's where we come from. But, I took your forefather Avram from the other side of the river, and I brought him to walk through Eretz Canaan, and I multiplied his children, okay, so we see already that there's a line which goes from Avram Avinu, goes on to Yitzchak, Ishmael is off on the side, and then Yitzchak had two children, Yaakov and Esau, twins. No other mother. It was Yitzchak and Rivka. And I gave Esau the mountain of Seir to inherit. Probably very fine real estate that he got. But Esau was not the continuation of the line of Avram. He himself rejected the ability that he had to continue there. He didn't want it. He did not become part of that, and therefore the Posuk is read, Ki only part of the descendants of Yitzchak will be considered the descendants of Avram Avinu. The chosen one was Yaakov. Yaakov was the chosen brother. Yaakov was the one who would continue. Wow, so if Esau got Har Seir for his real estate, what did Yaakov get? Yaakov Uban of Yordu Mitzrayim. Ah, Yaakov, the chosen one, yeah, you and your kids go down to Egypt for a few centuries of slavery. That's a fascinating picture of Jewish history, right? And, and the world, you should know, always attacks this definition of a chosen people. The Christians, the Muslims, a lot of the defensive writing that had to be done during the Middle Ages was there because they kept saying, you people are ridiculous. You keep saying you're the chosen people? Look at the history. Right? Everything burnt down in Israel. You're thrown into exile. We torture you and kill you and do whatever we want. And you're saying, chosen people, cross that off your t-shirt. You have to write the rejected people. That's who you are. But we say no. From the very beginning, it was like that. If you look at Yaakov Avinu, that chosen one, and his sons, the Shvatim, who formed the kernel of Am Yisrael, into Mitzrayim with you. Now, this going down to Mitzrayim was not really a punitive type of exile. Okay, in other words, when we look at the destruction of the first temple, second temple, we view it as a punitive exile, which again is never revenge on the part of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, but a tikkun. Here, this is something that was meant to be part of who we were, of the experience that we had to go through. Now, this really parallels something we all find in our lives. There's a Gemara in Brachas, 
that can be very troubling. It says, If a person finds suffering happening to him in his life, what should you do? You should take a look at your deeds. You should do a bit of accounting. Maybe God's sending you a message, right? Something happening there. Just uh, parenthetically, some people are very bothered by the fact that the most common, according to many people, preferable item from Mara is this romaine lettuce, chasa, right? which is very strange also because the word chasa, they say, is related to chas, that Hashem had mercy on his people. Here we have the contradiction the other way. This is the Mara. It has an idea of chas, of having the mercy. But people say, I buy that all year. I put it in my salad. Right, what, what is this, a bitter herb? Right, the horseradish people, right, that get the real thing. My father used to grow it in the garden and dig it up and grind it on Erev Pesach. And that would basically um, cause jets of flame to come out your ears when you ate it. Okay, that's something. But, but this, this lettuce, you say, bitter, bitter like Egypt. This lettuce, right, people like it. So I heard an explanation. I saw it afterwards, some other people as well, similar vein, Rabdavid Feinstein, that's all, the son of Moshe Feinstein. He said, basically, lettuce as it grows, now there's a very popular thing in the world of agriculture called microgreens. Microgreens is when you grow a variety of these type of leafy vegetables and you pick them when they're just this big. They're supposed to be very tasty and have like a lot more concentrated nutrients in them. And as it goes and grows and grows, eventually if you leave the lettuce in there to grow bigger and thicker, it gets more bitter. Okay, so he says that's exactly it. HaKadosh Baruch Hu sometimes wants to wake you up with Yisurim, with having a difficulty to wake you up. So Chazal said that could take the form of putting your hand in your pocket when you wanted to take out a 10 shekel piece and you got a 5 shekel piece. If a person would stop and think and say, whoa, maybe that's telling me something. I have to put my hand in my pocket again and fish around for that 10 shekel piece. Things are not going my way. Maybe I should do a bit of introspection. So you don't need anything heavier than that. Okay, so, but it says, Pishpesh velo matzah. What if you did this accounting and you didn't find anything wrong? No, didn't do anything wrong. Yitleb bitul Torah. They say you should attribute it to bitul Torah. Ah, you probably didn't learn enough. Right? That always works. You can never learn enough. Okay, so that's the catch-all. This is a very difficult Gemara to understand, right? First of all, right, if you tell me to do an accounting of my deeds, where would I start? You know, I'm not a person with one sin that I have to root out there, right? I have something like the New York phone book of sins that I have to try to work through. So I, I, how, do I, how do I do that, right? Pishpesh velo matzah, is there anyone who doesn't find? Usually in Amisol, the greater the person is, the greater list of wrongdoings he finds for himself. And that's, that's impossible. You can always do more in terms of Torah. What's happening? So when you look carefully in the Mepharshim, Rashi says that this idea of what you're looking for is something which really stands out as what's called midah keneged midah. Meaning sometimes happens, something happens in your life that you know, brings it out to you that shows, let's say, you ran over your neighbor's golf clubs with your car and you didn't tell him. And then when you go out you know, to play golf, I don't know, just when you're about to get a hole in one, a fox runs out and eats up the golf ball. Okay, so this seems to be this clear correspondence saying you've done something wrong that you didn't fix with the golf. Okay, so certain things are like that. 
פשפש ולא מצא, יתלה בביטול תורה. ביטול תורה, in this context, it's explained by a few commentators, meaning this, without this difficulty, you would not fulfill the role you are supposed to fulfill in God's Torah, in your role in the Jewish people, in your role in the Jewish history. Some of the Yisraelim we have, because you have to realize also, some Yisraelim are built in from the day people are born. Sometimes a person's born with a medical condition that they will suffer from for the rest of their lives. That's not something that came because of some wrongdoing. Right? There are a variety of things which are there. A person has to realize that the shape of what I am supposed to accomplish is going to come about oftentimes through, through passing through this furnace of difficulty. So Am Yisrael sitting at the Leila Seder are looking from the initial time that we spent in Mitzrayim that made us a nation, that enabled us to receive light because we went through darkness and being able to realize that it's all one. Pesach and Tishabov are all one. They're two sides of one coin. We must continue on our journey. We must maintain our identity. Sometimes it will take the form of B'tzaytim Mitzrayim. Sometimes it has to take the form of B'tzaytim Yushalayim. But no matter what, it's always moving us forward. It's always part of that journey. The ability to be able to see that and sense that is a key part of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. You have to realize that the people, our forefathers, were not stupid. And yes, they were singing and dancing when they came out of Mitzrayim, but they look back and they say, okay, but that was 210 years of torture. Well, what was going on there? Right? Why did it have to start in the first place? We were in Israel. Yaakov, before he went down to Mitzrayim, he was in Israel. He had the job. Why did we have to go to Mitzrayim? The ability to absorb that that is all part of who we are and what we are and what's supposed to happen is part of the key avoda on Leila Seder, to unite those different things, to see that those things are part and parcel of who we are and where we're supposed to be. So let's look at the red wine for a second. I mentioned, I think last time, the Maral says that the three matzot correspond to the three avot, Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. The four cups of wine correspond to the four imahot, Sarif, Garachal, and Leah. Parenthetically, I, until I started teaching like students from wider backgrounds, I'd never heard of this part of Seder paraphernalia. Has anybody heard of what was called the Miriam's Cup? No, it's, so this was a thing they, they explained to me. The, the premise is pretty much like this. The male chauvinist rabbis, right, as they usually do, ignored the heroic women of the Jewish people and, you know, totally wrote them out of the Haggadah. So therefore, now that people are more advanced, we have to make something to celebrate Miriam, the great heroine. So there's this cup you could buy in your Judaica stores, available on Amazon. It's a silver cup with an image of a woman, kind of like a Statue of Liberty type of thing, who represents Miriam. Okay, now again, if I were to head into Judaica, I would want to make some kind of Moshe Rabbeinu cup also, because one of the famous curiosities about the Haggadah is he's not mentioned in the Haggadah either. Okay, now, um, where are the women, so to speak, there in the Arba Kosot? Again, the Maral explains that uh, why grain represents the approach of men, the primary approach of men to things, right? Chazal uh, connect grain with intellect. 
This doesn't mean that women don't have intellect. And wine enhances and is the power of emotion, which doesn't mean that men don't have emotion. It's talking about this primary power. Now, I saw the question. This was of Moshe Wolfson in America. He asked, why weren't the women broken by the suffering in Mitzrayim? Okay, let's look at another interesting little halachic thing about these cups of wine on the table. In the basic halacha, women are not obligated in what's called the mitzvah shazman groma, a positive commandment which is time-dependent. Okay, why? Rabbi, I'll give you a good share on it someday. Okay, but that is the general template. Now, the four cups of wine are a time-dependent rabbinical commandment. Okay, matzah is a Torah commandment. It's doraita even nowadays. And that applies to both men and women. There's a special posuk, berev tochu matzot. Everybody's in on the matzah. But why should women have to drink four cups of wine? Even though it's rabbinic and the rabbonon can design it any way they want, they usually follow the template of how the Torah does things. So the Gemara tells us that there were three mitzvahs that come to be mefarsemenes, that come to publicize miracles, where they decided that the women must be obligated as well because of a principle called afhein hayuboto anes. They were also in the same miracle. Now, in the Rishonu, we find two approaches as to how that's explained. One is that they were that they were in the same danger. So the mitzvahs that we have are reading the Megillah on Purim. It says straight out in the Megillah, Taf Hashim, Haman wanted to kill everyone, men, women, and children. On Hanukkah, the lighting of the Hanukkah Nerot, again, the Yavanim, some of their Gezerot, some of their decrees were specifically targeted against women. And in Mitzrayim, so the women certainly also suffered. The other approach in the Rishonim was that the mitzvah, that the nes came about al yedei isha, by a woman. Okay, so here Purim is the easiest, Esther. Hanukkah has the mysterious character of Yehudit, that woman who killed the Greek general and turned the tide of the war. Pesach, they said, that refers to in the merit of the righteous women, our forefathers were redeemed from Egypt. What did they do, right, these righteous women? And what was their power and why should it be expressed in the wine and how can that same cup of wine have in it a memory of the blood of the Jewish children who were killed? One of the most powerful instincts that humanity knows is the power of the maternal instinct. And one would think that the decrees of the Egyptians, which tore children from their mothers' arms and murdered them, would have broken the women much more than it would have broken the men. Nonetheless, that was not true. The women provided strength to the men. Okay, the Gemara tells us, it says, that it talks about how they would go and they would draw water and there would be fish in the water and they'd cook up the fish and bring it to the husbands in the fields who were suffering from the slave labor and they would encourage them and give them hope and this would give them the morale and spirit necessary to bring forth more generations. Rashi and Parshat Kitisa brings the other Chazal which talks about the marotat the mirrors of the women who brought these copper mirrors to Moshe Rabbeinu. And Moshe Rabbeinu first was a little reluctant 
to receive these mirrors. He thought, uh, wait a second, there's the Mishkan, and you bring Glamour magazine things to the Mishkan. It didn't, didn't seem to mix so much. HaKadosh Baruch Hu told him, these are more precious to me than anything else. Because in Mitzrayim, when the men were broken, and the classic example of that is the father of Moshe Rabbeinu, who was separated from his wife. He said, I do not want to bring more children into this world of suffering, into these things. And Miriam was the one who told him that you're worse than Paro. And she brought her parents together. And that was what brought Moshe. So it says that when the men were all broken, the women would come and they would stand with the mirror and they would say to their husbands, look in the mirror, I'm more beautiful than you are. It doesn't seem like such a chiddush. He just got out of the mud pits, you know, and he said, this, what, what is going on with that? So here, the na'ah that we're talking about is the na'ah of emunah. It's the beauty of emunah. We find that Am Yisrael commanded lotit godudu. We're not allowed to self-mutilate in, in mourning. Rashi says, why? Because you are people who are supposed to be na'im. You're supposed to be beautiful, not megudadim. Not people who are cut up. Now again, but that's particularly in mourning. So the Mepharshim explained that the idea of self-mutilation in mourning is when a person loses their emunah. They lose their emunah in the future. They lose their emunah in the fact that the soul continues on, that death is not final. So what the women were saying was, I have not given up this emunah. To me, it's real. And that is why it says that Miriam and the other women brought out drums because they said, We are going to experience miracles. So the understanding that even though times are bitter, even though they're difficult, even though they're there, it's not purposeless. It's not random. It's because of who we are. That's what the haroset says. The haroset, we take this thing that represents mud and we have it with all the fruits that represent the Jewish people. And the Jewish people being compared to a fruit means that they're an end product. That's what the fruit is of a tree. That we are the ones who will bring the world to its purpose. And therefore, you're able to taste the sweetness if you're able to build up that sensitivity even in that. And therefore, we dip the mara into the haroset. But the haroset is sweet. And it transforms the mara into an experience that is also sweet. This is supposed to give us that strength that comes from all of our history that those events that are difficult and that applies to our personal lives as well, are supposed to be able to be understood in context of leading somewhere, heading somewhere, bringing us someplace, building us, guiding us toward that portion of what we're supposed to contribute to the story of the Jewish people. And therefore, we're able to thank Hashem on Mitzrayim. One of the most simple, disturbing questions someone can ask you at your Leila Seder you're trying to tell the story, and you say, we suffered terribly in Egypt, and God took us out, and with great miracles, and he brought us to Israel, and we thank him tonight for taking us out and setting us free from the terrible torture and slavery. So one guest says, who put you in there? Who did that to you? God did that to you. He told Avram Avinu he was going to do it, and he did it. He said, your children will be strangers in a land which is not theirs. And the people there will enslave them and torture them. He said he would do it. 
And he did it. He took us out. Thank you so much for taking us out. Would you really do that? If you came home and your brother locked you in a closet, six hours later he lets you out, do you buy him ice cream? <laughs> it doesn't. And if you think about that question, it's there almost every time we ask Hashem for saving us from something. They announce in Shul, Kiddush this week is sponsored by the Greenstein family because of the tremendous recovery Mr. Greenstein had from his illness. Somebody yells out, hey, Greenstein, who made you sick? It was God, right? It's there. It's built in to all these things. So the answer is that through the Yitzhiat Mitzrayim process, they gained the perspective to understand that even the difficulties were part of a process that they need to be thankful for. You can't always see it. It has to be seen with the eyes of Amuna, but it's there. To taste the sweetness that's in the charos, in that mud. To be able to drink the cup of wine, which is one of festivity and freedom, but not forgetting and ignoring the terrible tragedies that happen and the murder of the Jewish children. Jews don't have to ignore the difficulties of our past or present in order to sing and celebrate. I once spoke to somebody I worked with and uh, she was telling me how every weekend she goes out to dance. She goes out to clubs and she dances. And I said, I don't get it. first of all, all I knew from dancing, you go to your friend's bar mitzvah, you run around in a circle a few times, you get dizzy and you sit down. I, and she said, you dance for hours and, and you, you go, I said, so first of all, how do you have strength to dance that much? Second of all, are you always in the mood to dance every weekend? So she says, you don't get it. She says, you go into this place and it's like dark and there's flashing lights and there's really loud music and you have a few drinks and you're not thinking about anything. You're just dancing. And I realized that's not what we do. When we celebrate, it's not that we have to forget every painful aspect of life in order to, so to speak, let loose. It's all there with us on the table at the time, experiencing it. And yet, we're able to make that all part of one joyous experience. We don't see how all the parts fit in, but we know they do. And then we know that at one point we will be able to look back and to see that. So hopefully, right, this year, Pesach will truly lead into that understanding that Chazal say that their of Hashem is to sweeten bitter things with bitterness. We've had enough bitterness to sweeten all the bitter. May we experience the sweet and be able to sing the song. He said, one of the great rabbis who was an expert in the Hebrew language, he was, once said, what's the difference between a shira and a shir? Shira, the feminine, shir, the masculine. He says, a shira is like a, a miniature, like a part. If you have a symphony, sometimes a symphony has four movements. So they're like four songs that together make up one symphony. He says, every shira of Jewish history is eventually going to become part of that very big shir. So the Rav he was spoken to responded, and this is just our praise of the wonderful place where he says, now I understand what is the difference between a kihila and a kahal. Kahal is the entire Jewish people. A kihila is a community and the kahal is made up of many kihilot. So again, it's been a pleasure to be in this very special kihila and sing a bit of shira with you, and we look forward to joining that all together. Have a chakashevus